0: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Chapters, SIU Student Histories. My name is Ben, and this is Josh. Hello. Josh, we've got an interesting subject on the docket today. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: that? We sure do. Um, Also, this is the uh, first episode where I'm actually one of the hosts. Last week, you guys were graced uh, with the presence of Ryan, I guess, for the last two weeks. Uh, But yeah, no, Sean is covering uh, mining disasters. And specifically, he's actually gone local for this one. Sean's research focused around mines and mining disasters that happened in southern Illinois um, from the late 19th century into the mid 20th century.
0: And that's going to be a little treat for... Well, hopefully it'll be a little treat for those from Southern Illinois. This is something we're going to try to do with Chapters. Every two episodes or so, we'll be jumping back in to a local history. Uh, Josh, you have a local history coming up later in the year. but I sure do. We'll touch on that later in the week. This week, we're focusing on Sean, mining disasters in Southern Illinois, and their importance on a national scale. Let's jump right into it. Hello, and welcome to Chapters, where we discuss and learn from SIUC history students some of the most interesting bits from our past. My name's Ben, and I'm joined today by Josh Cannon. Hi! And we also have Sean Peebles, an undergraduate here at SIUC. Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: My name's Sean Peebles. I am a transfer junior from Bartlett, Illinois. I transferred here last semester. I took a 392 class, had to write this research paper, and then I was approached by Ben and Dr. Schrammick for a podcasting experiment.
1: And what a mistake you learned that was. <laughs> and what a mistake I
0: learned that was. So, Sean, do you want to give a, a shout-out to your JUCO while you've got the opportunity, or...?
2: I went to Elgin Community College. Okay. Any, any significance in the choice to SIU, or...? I loved how the campus felt, even when it was raining and downpouring. Which it does fairly often. It does very often. I don't mind. It's honestly just a very nice campus. Mm -hmm. with some great people so Sean
0: we could talk about this all day but I think what most people want to hear is is your story and and you've brought us one about this region right
2: yes I when I wrote this paper I wanted to focus on an area of Southern Illinois the history of mines the history of laws and safety standards because when most people think of mines they think of strikes coal
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, Sean, tell me, where does the uh, where does the story of coal start in southern Illinois?
2: Well, first, I'd like to start on May 29th, 2008, with a comment from the then senator Barack Obama uh, saying that southern Illinois was the Saudi Arabia of coal, which, of course, means that we have lots of coal down here. Uh, His controversial pursuit of clean coal and several mining regulations have been repealed under the Trump administration. With coal back on the table and more readily mineable due to deregulation, uh, it seems prudent to pause and take a deep look at the history and the unfortunately sobering legacy of coal mining in Southern Illinois and how it has been defined by the greater conducts of mining across the country, as well as the legislation that followed its swift climb and recent falls in industry.
0: Why don't we talk about that? When was coal first found in this region of Southern Illinois?
2: So coal was first found as far back as 1673 when Joliet and Pierre Marquette saw outcroppings of coal near Utica along the Illinois River.
1: Yeah. Now let me, let me interject. Who are those guys?
2: Early American explorers.
0: And from near- those names, I presume they're French? Yes. Yeah. So French explorers in Southern Illinois in, in 1600. I don't
1: think we think about that a whole lot. No. no. I mean, some- fun fact, uh, Illinois was mostly French for how long? I don't know. Up until the, the Louisiana Purchase? I guess so. Well, I mean, of course, they landed here. They didn't just start out.
0: We might get some bad history in this podcast. Anyways, we could talk about history all day, but what we're talking about is coal mining, <laughs> a very important part of
2: our local history. Uh, the coal mines that were made were really just small and meant to support the local needs throughout the 1800s. So whatever people used, needed coal for, whether that was heating water or powering mills or industry... Uh, It it was up to the point of the anti-railroad period, which means uh, before railroads were becoming a big thing. Mm -hmm. It's anti with an Mm. A-N-T-E. Okay, not anti.
1: Like anti up, getting ready for something. Mm. Okay. This meant that uh,
2: coal was becoming more commercially widespread uh, in Pennsylvania in anthracite coal fields.
0: See, I didn't even know there was two different types of coal. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) This was, unfortunately, a, a very dangerous time to be a coal miner hard labor and dangerous explosive charges to fill out the mines. It was more of productivity versus safety standards. So it was more determined on how much coal companies could pump out.
0: And you're talking like immediate and present dangers, like explosions, uh, mining collapses, not even getting into the, the more modern mm-hmm. topics of like black lung and disease, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So,
1: well, I think, yeah, go ahead, Josh. Oh, um, something fun that I, uh, kind of adding into Sean's research, uh, a little bit that I know about coal mining is the fact, like what Sean had mentioned about um, the value of coal being more like the quantity over quality, a lot of coal miners would opt to use more dangerous equipment. So open flames as opposed to, like, lanterns that, ha- that were covered to protect, like, the heat and to protect uh, open flame from being in the, the mines because they were often heavier than the strictly open flame uh, lamps usually. And so they would actually use those because they would get less worn out by using them and they usually have them last longer than the, uh, the encased lighting methods. Going off that,
2: that's actually a direct result of one of the early disasters, unfortunately, which so, I will get into a bit later. Okay. What do we have before that then? Before that, it's it's more of just building up the the anti-railroad period, which is the early 19th century. In 1891, that's when the first Federal Mine Safety Institute was created. Mm-hmm that it's just established minimum ventilation in underground mines and the fact that no children under 12 could work in mines.
0: <laughs> All right, so we're moving on through the 19th century. It, what, what was coal mining starting to shape out as in Southern Illinois?
2: And from the 1850s to 1915, we're starting the, the railroad period which is when railroads became a huge thing across America. And with the invention of the steam locomotive, coal was able to be transported much farther than it was before. It could go across state. And of course the trains themselves needed coal. So coal mining became linked to railroads, steam locomotive. By finding coal, industry soon followed. Industry meant they needed more coal. More coal meant they needed new coal mining. After the rise of the coal industry, Josh, your comment about the unshielded flames miners used when electricity wasn't working in a mine or if they didn't even have electricity down there. And with the limited safety standards that were enacted within the mines, that actually leads to one of the biggest mining disasters in Illinois history, which I feel I need to comment on even if it isn't nearby Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. it's the cherry Mine disaster
1: uh, now where where is cherry it's in the northern part of illinois so I, I actually remember it from the other day cherry is north of springfield but i think a bit sh- south of chicago so it's like it's like almost in the dead middle of the state but like on the northern half
0: cherry illinois looks like it's about an hour north of peoria an hour south of rockford
2: that's about right so back to what you were back saying back to what i was saying The mine in Cherry supplied the city of Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul's Railroad with around 3,000 tons every year. Unfortunately, on November 13th, 1909, the electrical system inside the mine had failed, so the miners were using kerosene lamps to see. These Mm -hmm.
0: kerosene lamps, were they the, the kind that did not
2: have a cover? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because one of these uh, torches caught a hay cart on fire. They used a hay cart to feed the mules who helped pull the large amounts of coal outside the mine. The hay cart caught fire. The hay cart caught the coal dust on fire. The whole mine caught fire.
1: So you're saying that someone brought in, well, they brought in open kerosene lamps and not only did they do that, but they also then set a hay cart on fire, which then in turn set the whole mine on fire. Yes. What, okay. what makes like a coal mine burn? Like if there's an accident when there's fire in a coal mine, what exactly is the, what makes the coal dust like burn up and, and go up so quickly? It is coal, but like <laughs> I, what's, how fast is like coal, because I, I, I'm so used to coal being something that like, you like put in a grill and it like take, you got to like put like lighter fluid on it and stuff.
2: Right. This is uh, coal dust, first off. So when you mine the coal, there's like little particles, dust, chunks that fall off that you don't need. And it just kind of sits on the ground. That stuff gathers and gathers and gathers. And unless it's either removed or in a process called rock dusting, where they take limestone dust and water and spray down the mine to muffle any explosion that could happen. That wasn't done here. So, again, it caught fire... Rather quickly, the fire spread and the only thing that was able to really stop it was the lack of air that eventually happened inside the mine. Of course, this was the, the absolute worst that happened in Illinois history with 259 people being lost inside the mine.
0: Uh, so we, we talked earlier, Sean, about the 1891 uh, law was being passed to help manage the safety of the mines. And now in 1909... Uh, we have this, the, the greatest mining disaster in Illinois history. Was was the cherry mine in violation of those safety rules or were those safety rules just not enough?
2: These safety rules were not enough. The cherry mine wasn't in violation of the minimum safety procedure that the federal government enforced. I do have a firsthand account from one of the miners, a William Maxwell, who was one of the few people to escape this mine because he was one of the people closest to the, the cage that let them up and down into the mine. Uh, he described the, the smoke coming from it as hot and thick. You can imagine just it billowing up throughout the, the mine, kind of smothering everything.
0: So if, if, if 1909 wasn't, if they weren't in violation of any laws, did, did they lead to the, the creation of any new laws?
2: Yes. This was one of the mines that was used In a case against the federal company, kind of like an example that there needs to be more done Mm -hmm. because mining is, in 1909, such a dangerous profession. So a year later, the Bureau of Mines were created within the Department of the Interior. However, this was very ineffective at this stage. It was limited to research and investigation. They couldn't even inspect the mines. They were created to research. However, Illinois did pass its own laws around this time, which was the Workers' Compensation Act, so that the families with injured workers didn't need to rely on charitable donations from families left in Cherry.
0: Okay, so we've got new laws in place. The inability to enforce on the federal level obviously is, is, is probably going to lead to some, some further disasters in Illinois, as your paper alludes to.
2: Right, the, the next era, the golden era of mining, uh, fortunately, no large scale disasters like Cherry happened mm-hmm. during this era. The The older mines that were created were upgraded. Uh, new mines were opening and coal production in America peaked during these war periods. So they call it the golden era because labor was, was high, because there was more mines. Because... There was more mines, mm-hmm. more people coming in. It was a great time to be
1: a miner great time to invest in coal well you gotta be think about it too it's the period between 1915 and 1945 so you have world war one going on and you also have world war ii amping up and even going on
0: mm-hmm. but of course you've got the depression sandwiched in there so it's true that's true so sean talk about mines during this this era this
2: this right. kind of wild uh, uh,
1: golden west
2: <laughs> So fewer coal companies but they did also experience a larger output so less companies but more output mm-hmm. uh, less mining accidents happened at this time due to modern technology being introduced into the mines uh, better fans better ventilation better ways of excavating new areas uh, however many smaller mines closed after world war one as coal declined in world war ii demand averaged around 70 million tons per year compared to the 90 million tons in 1918 which was the all-time high of coal demand hmm. and of course that's because you've, you've got
0: gasoline and, and diesel right right entering the fold but mining still popular in southern illinois obviously 70 million still a lot and illinois is a, a very big part of that
2: right uh, this also marked the era where coal shifted from railroad companies to power companies as natural gases for fuel began to replace coal. There wasn't much federal legislation passed throughout this era. The public law 7749 granted federal inspectors the right of entry into coal mines to actually make inspections. Oh, there we go. Finally, they're allowed inside the mines. Right. But it's still not good because there was no safety or health regulations were actually mandated.
1: So, okay. So hang on, let me get this straight. First of all, they're created and they can only research what's safe for mines. And then they're given the ability to go into mines, but they can't do anything about it. Right. (laughs) It's as useless as it sounds. I want to make some joke about Illinois government, but we've all heard that before. (laughs) Anyway, back to back to what you were saying
2: (laughs) in my paper. I didn't focus too much on the the unions that sprung out from these mines. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: However, I did feel it worth to mention the uh, United Mine Workers Union and the fact that Southern Illinois miners were the most outspoken against this union because they felt they weren't being treated fairly. And why was that in 1932? John Lewis, who was the head of the union mine workers, uh, proposed to decrease the Illinois miner wages from six ten a day to $5 flat in an effort to centralize the union's power. Uh, he also wanted to do this so more miners could keep their jobs. Of course, this was 1932. It was in the start of the Depression era. So also during this time, the southern Illinois miners also voted overwhelmingly to form their own union. The... Progressive miners of America in 1938.
1: Yeah, so we have all these increases in not only unions, but also a little bit of legislation. What's the next disaster that happens? So the
2: next one, Centralia number five, coal mine near the town of Centralia, Illinois, which I believe is also only a few hours away from southern Illinois. It's about 45 an hour north of us. Yeah, it's not far at all. This was the, the second worst. Mining disaster after Mm Cherry, with 111 people lost. This was the most flagrantly disregarded mine safety one because this was a direct result of managers blatantly ignoring safety procedures and mine inspector recommendations. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So when the inspectors went in and wrote out the recommendations, they wanted the mine operators to apply rock dusting to certain areas of the mine to muffle any disaster that might happen. However, after the disaster itself, uh, during a Senate hearing, the general superintendent of Centralia Number no. 5 uh, said that he did not understand from the inspector's report that the dust condition was an immediate hazard. When they were excavating a new part of the mine, they used blasting charges to clear away large sections of the, the mine. Uh, on March 25th, however, a charge caught explosive coal dust on fire immediately exploding. And that would also answer Josh's question of how fast a mine can can go up because they use explosives. So, Sean, this is what year? 1947. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Sean, in your expert opinion, do you think that the this mining disaster helped to close the golden era of mining?
2: Yes, Ben. I think that this marked the end of the period of the golden era of mining. So We haven't even talked about the West Frankfurt disaster. What happened there? Mm-hmm. Well, shortly before I talk about that, mm-hmm. I'd like to add that as a result of Centralia, there was actually a new public law instituted, which was 8328, which put in the first federal safety standards for bituminous coal and lignite mines. So we finally have federal safety standards. So these, these
0: mining inspectors can now go
2: into the mines and then enforce
0: something rather than just make recommendations?
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> oh still they still could enforce this they can only notify mine operators okay well and state mine agency of violations got it
1: let me ask you this then um were there any other disasters or incidents that help feed into these new public laws about mining accidents or was it almost exclusively illinois mine accidents While I specifically focused
2: on, of course, Illinois mining accidents, there were other unfortunate accidents throughout the country that helped feed into these laws. Like, for example, Cherry was just one of three that marked a push for the creation of kind of an oversight on mines in America. And I'm going to use this to push into the second disaster of the modern era, which was the New Orient Mine Number 2 in West Frankfurt. This happened December 21st, 1951, a few days before Christmas. West Frankfurt, however, is only a around a 40-minute drive from SIU. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very nearby. This happened on a a Friday night when the the high school over there, I don't know what type of game they were playing, but they were playing a game against Marion
0: on December Friday. Yeah, probably a basketball or a football game.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: At this, they heard an announcement over the speakers in this high school gymnasium that there's been a catastrophe. As you can imagine, this slowly caused everyone to leave and investigate what happened. So this, this mine disaster was probably the most violent out of all of them because it resulted in a buildup of methane gas, inadequate ventilation, and inadequate rock dusting.
0: So again, a, a violation of safety rules and regulations Right from a,
2: a mine just down the street from the last one, yeah. just a few years later. The inspectors did recommend changes that would make the mine safer. The, the operators agreed to some of these changes, but not the others. Since the Federal Bureau had no authority to actually enforce these recommendations, they agreed to change out the ventilation. And while they were in the middle of, of doing that, th- that's when the explosion happened, mm. unfortunately.
1: Now, what sort of outcry came from the public after they learned that the mine was warned that they should have made changes? As a direct result of this one specifically,
2: because this was in 1951 and the Coal Mining Safety Act was enacted in 1952, which finally allowed the limited power of enforcement for the bureau of mines only about 122 years later after they were founded they were finally given the power to enforce the safety standards they could
0: so sean obviously coal production in in southern illinois and across the country and possibly even the world, has gone down since the 1950s and, and these disasters. And whether or not it's those disasters directly tied to the, the decline of coal or if the economy's just shifted to another place, what is the relevance to today's world uh, of these disasters?
2: So the, the relevance in today's world for these disasters is quite recently, since at least going back since 2016 when Trump was elected. hmm with his, uh, Trump's repeal of Obama's Clean Power Plan and his withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords in 2017, uh, Illinois' coal production did increase around 10%. And this was from a, a 2019 Chicago Magazine article about uh, coal production increasing after Trump's election. So, with coal production seemingly increasing, it would be important to look back on the history of coal mining itself in southern Illinois specifically. So as a result of needing good oversight, good safety standards, a way to enforce said safety standards, Uh, because as uh, Bernie Harzi said, the president of the United Mine Workers of America, uh, every law passed that benefited the miners was written in blood. It's important to remember where these laws came from, what they did, and what the cost was to pass them.
0: Mm -hmm. So even if we do see a return um of... Mining as a profession in Southern Illinois, it's important to keep in mind the worker.
1: Right. Well, I think that's a fantastic ending, Sean. Thank you so much for coming and uh, presenting your research to us. Thank you for having me.
0: Wow. So really, mining disasters in Southern Illinois are, are certainly a major player. Josh, you have a little bit more information for those that want to learn more?
1: Yeah. If you guys are interested to learn a little bit more about mining and mining disasters, you can actually go on the CDC's website. Um, It's under the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, um, however you want to pronounce that. Um, But they actually have an online resource that allows you to um, view chronologically the mining disasters that occurred in the U.S. from 1839 to present. Um, And kind of near the top of the list, you can find with the most casualties, uh, Two of the accidents that um, Sean talks about, the Cherry uh, Mine explosion, uh, or the Cherry Mine fire, and the Orient Number no. 2 explosion that happened over in West Frankfurt. So um, if you're interested, you guys can check that out. There's a lot of other accidents you can find that went on in West Virginia. Uh, but those this kind of gives you an idea for the numbers. And um, the Orient Number no. 2 uh, that occurred in 1951 is actually... One of the most current or most recent events that had some of the most casualties in mining.
0: And it's such a tragedy, too, especially I think Sean really does a good job of touching on this, that a lot of these were preventable and and they could have been preventable with a little bit of stricter regulation. So simply (laughs) or simply put it a very good example of of how we need to learn from history and and history's value to us as humans and and our, our existence.
1: Yeah. Don't don't skimp out on your uh your mining regulations. Keep your mind safe, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, thank you for joining us for this week.
1: Well, guys, thanks so much for listening. This has been Chapters and SIUC podcast. Um and now we'd like to give some thanks to people.
0: We do have a few special people we would like to thank. Josh, take it away.
1: Yeah. First, we'd like to thank the SIU Foundation. Without the funding that we got from them, this podcast and the podcasting lab wouldn't be possible.
0: Certainly. Also, Professor Bean, the chair of the History Department, and Professor Schrammick, the undergraduate director of the History Department, both of them fundamental in getting this project off the
1: ground. Indeed. Also, a big thank you to Professor Pinkney Benedict of the Creative Writing and English Department. Without him, uh, the bones for all of this wouldn't have been in place.
0: special thank you to Professor Carla Berry, the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence. Without CTE, Josh and I probably would have never met and would have never dreamed up this project.
1: And a special thanks to Professor Carla Berry and Lind Anderson Lindberg, uh, both of which are faculty advisors for University Innovation Fellows, which Ben and I did most of this project through.
0: And finally, I'd like to give a personal thank you to... Professor Holly Hurlburt uh, was instrumental in me choosing history as a career path and a big inspiration behind Chapters Podcast. Thank you to everybody who supports us. If you would like to support us, all you have to do is follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Find us at Chapters SIU History Podcast on Facebook or Chapters SIU History Podcast on Twitter. Follow us on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. That is chapters SIU student history SIU student history hey and make sure to join us next week next week we're sitting down with Sean Sean is not only a local student but he's doing a local history on three separate mining disasters here in southern Illinois and their impact on a national scale so be sure to join us for that next week